Toxic environments lead to burnout. Burnout is the first predictor of attrition. I think very few companies actually walk the talk. You're never going to win the race by fixing your weakness. You're only going to win the race by leveraging strength. Welcome to McKinsey Israel on High Tech, featuring discussions on technology, business and management. This podcast is brought to you by McKinsey Israel Tech Hub where we help tech companies and startups realize their full potential. Welcome to the McKinsey Israel on High Tech podcast. My name is Matt Cook. I lead communications for McKinsey here in Israel, and I'll be your host for this and future episodes. It's great to have you with us. Today, we're going to be talking tech talent. This is a hot topic whenever it's discussed, pretty much anywhere in the world today and across multiple industries, whether it's attracting, upskilling, supporting or retaining talent. And yet, what a difference a couple of months makes. Here in Israel, one of the tech hotspots of the world, in the face of rising inflation, geopolitical instability, including the knock-on economic impact of Russia's war against Ukraine and COVID-19, we've seen many companies stop hiring and freezing headcount. A general chilling, if you like, of the white heat of Israel's frenetic tech talent market. Now, with me today to discuss the ever-evolving science of tech talent management and development, I'm really excited to welcome Adi Sofertini, Vice President and General Manager of Meta Israel. Before joining Meta, then Facebook, of course, over eight years ago, Adi was, and in some cases continues to be, an investor and board member of numerous Israeli businesses and was formerly managing director of B2C arm of global online gaming company 888 Holdings PLC and also CEO of the Kidum Group, Israel's largest private education provider. We're also delighted to have Dana Maor, McKinsey senior partner based here in Israel, former leader of our Israel office and today co-leader of McKinsey's global people and organizational performance practice. Welcome to you both. Hey, thank you. Great to be here. Yes, super cool. Adi, I'm going to start with you, if that's okay. Let's set a little context. I'd love to hear from you what your role at Meta entails. And also, what does it mean to be Meta Israel versus Meta in other markets? What's Meta focusing on here, basically? That's perfect. So first of all, we have two arms of the company in Israel. We have an R&D center, actually the second largest outside of the U.S. And then we have our local office here. And it is, Matt, as you said, a unique office, in some sense, doing very similar things like Meta in Germany or Meta in Brazil, but uh, but also very special because it's probably the only office we have globally that is specializing in working with startups from very early stage and all the way to unicorns and IPO companies. So that's serving the local ecosystem here. But again, a lot of focus on startups from very early on and all, all the way. And I think that in many ways, sometimes when people ask what is a local office, so it's being the face of Meta in Israel but at the same time also being the face of Israel at Meta, representing this country in this amazing global company, is something that makes me proud every single day, even in the tough days. Can we go a little deeper on the development of B2C tech in Israel? 12 years ago, I think this was really not a thing, right, here in Israel. It was, there was deep tech development, but that connection to the end consumer wasn't here yet. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so... You're absolutely right. Uh, this is actually why I took the job. Throughout my career, I've been managing and leading companies from traditional industries, very like brick and mortar local businesses, and all the way to now working in one of the biggest digital tech internet company in the world. And in between, focusing a lot on startups. And the realization, even back in the days of 888, was that Israel didn't have a B2C tech industry at all. So the Startup Nation story until pretty much 10 years ago was very much focused on what we call deep tech. 
And even when companies went from research and innovation to a more commercialized um, aspects of the business, it was very much focused on what we called B2E, and not B2B, B2 enterprise or B2G, B2 government. This, is, this was the go-to-market. Kind of, the big tech companies were doing B2E or B2G. You could have seen a lot of entrepreneurs starting to build mobile apps and internet services, and they couldn't raise money. Literally, like $100,000 was something to celebrate. Like people couldn't believe when they got such a check. And the notion at the time was, when talking to the top VCs in the country, that it's simply not our forte. It's not something that Israel is good at. We don't have the right entrepreneurs. We don't have the right product people. We don't have, we don't have the right investors. They didn't know how to invest. And we almost missed the opportunity. Because with no investment, it's very difficult to build an ecosystem. We almost missed the opportunity of becoming, of startup nation developing this additional important pillar of B2C and internet. And luckily we didn't. So eight years ago, I was about to start my own startup, actually. B2C, walk the talk. I had the money, I had the idea, I had the team. And then Facebook called. And uh, so I decided to put the notebook in the draw and go and work with hundreds of startups instead of just focusing on one. And that's what we did. We worked with probably more than 1,000 startups. The amazing thing is that fast forward to today, it's third of Startup Nation. So 10 years fast forward, like the dream became a reality and third of the startups here are B2C tech, third of the IPO'd are B2C tech, third of the unicorns are B2C tech. And it obviously makes me feel extremely proud. I think that this is about the industry and having like enough VCs that eventually wrote nice checks, not huge ones, but nice at the beginning and some entrepreneurs that had tons of belief and yeah. They're staggering figures for a decade, but Dana, let's bring you in here. That period during which B2C tech corresponds with your time in McKinsey and leading our office here from Herzliya and now in Sirona in Tel Aviv, where we're based now, itself a kind of tech hub within a hub, of course. What are your reflections on B2C tech development and how have the talent needs evolved? Do you want to talk us a little bit about that? Yeah, and I think that maybe I'll be more focused on the last couple of years because what happened with COVID is some of the trends that were already happening before were truly accelerated through COVID and then there's new ones. So to mention three of them, obviously there's tremendous connectivity, right? Much, much more connectivity with than ever with omni-channels that increases the ways to access consumers. The second one is probably the unprecedented automation, which immediately translates to very different patterns in terms of what we look for in talent. And then the third one with transaction cost going much lower as we approach consumers in a different way, we are actually free of larger organizations, right? We have the freedom to now approach these B2C tech startups, the applications, different way to procure, different way for small companies to think of payments, to think of procurement, to think of supply chain management, and that's a virtuous cycle. So these startups actually created an opportunity for other startups that in turn created a revolution. But what that also means is that the skills and capabilities that we're looking for are different. We're looking for UX designers. Exactly. We're looking for cloud developers, which would be needed everywhere. We're looking for a different way of working and programming. So those skills and capabilities that we're looking for are very different. And there are numbers, staggering numbers that we have not looked for before but in parallel, what this talent is expecting is quite different. And so there's a dual challenge of closing the gap of skills and capabilities that are in need in exponential growth. And at the same time, their expectations are, and needs are changing radically. And so it creates a very different challenge, I think, for 
tech companies and for traditional companies as they're looking to find this amazing talent. And I probably would add one thing. When you go into one of these huge B2C tech or digital companies like Wix and Fiverr and Lemonade and Monday and Lightrix, only a portion of their employees are engineers. So for the first time in the history of Startup Nation, when we are talking about the tech ecosystem, the need of talent is not just focusing on engineers. Obviously, strong engineers are always needed, but it's about designers and data scientists. Data is like crucial in B2C, right? It's a data play. So data scientists and any data type of capability, design, content, business, go to market, marketing, sales. So you actually go to these companies and they look more like a regular normal company and not just like a 10 hardcore engineers in a basement. So the talent pool and the diversity of talent that are needed for this phase are very different and it's actually creating tons of opportunities for more people to, to join this amazing Startup Nation success story. Absolutely. Dana, thanks so much for that, both of you. Dana, McKinsey's authored a couple of recent papers, which I think are super relevant here. The Great Attrition was one, and Tech <laughs> Talent Tectonics was the other. But I'm thinking about this phenomena of employees that we're seeing continuing to leave their jobs at record levels. And yet we still see companies trying to attract and retain those people in the same old ways, basically. I saw a survey recently which showed that just under half of all those working in tech who left their jobs in the last year went to work in a completely different industry altogether. And for workers, particularly those with sought-after skills, so data scientists and programmers, it seems the hurdles to changing industries are lower. And evidence suggests that companies are more focused on hiring people for their skills rather than their industry experience. That's got to be a wake-up call for tech companies, right? I, I think it's a wake-up call for all companies. And some of what Adi just said in terms of the fact that any company now is not only 10 engineers, but also many other skills and capabilities that need to be fluent in the tech world, that need to be fluent in what it means to be a B2C tech company, but still need to have other skills and capabilities. Because what happens is with this explosion of need and massive shift, competition is super intense. You cannot hire and fire your way out of it. You have to think about the people that you have in the organization and how you upskill those individuals and help them become more relevant. We've also just launched an MGI research, McKinsey Global Institute, that looks at the investment in new capital and learn that those organizations that invest in the people that are in their organization are actually standing to benefit from it, not to mention that people themselves are much happier. And as you think of that in the context of the great attrition, some are cynical, right? Some are saying now with increased inflation and Google announcing that they might not be recruiting as many, maybe there's an end to this great attrition. But what we're seeing with fresh data, four months old, so it only looked at data in the US in the inflation context, there is no change yet. Because what people are really looking for is a different experience. And the recruiting experience should be thought of as an experience, as opposed to a one-time event where you have somebody who come on board. And the culture that you have in your company is also going to determine whether you're going to be able to hold on to these people because they know by now that their skills and capabilities are relevant across industries. They know that there are organizations out there that are trying to crack the secret formula as to how to create that working environment that excites them. And we also know that those that suffer from burnout typically choose to move on because of the toxic working environment, not because of anything else. So when you put all that together, I think the wake-up call is for all companies as they try to think about how to preserve, attract, retain, develop, excite the best talent out there because we are all tech companies now. And we all need more than just engineers in our companies. 
So, Dan, it strikes me as you were speaking, differentiation at the recruitment stage is like absolutely critical here. So how are companies actually, how are you seeing companies doing that in practice, signaling their culture at recruitment stage? So I think that thinking about it in isolation, how do you only signal your culture at the recruiting phase is already part of the issue because this is a world of transparency. Everybody knows what's happening within your company. People left your company, people joined your company. And it should be a question of what is the working environment and experience that I create in my company across the board, not only in that moment where I try to attract someone. It is about how you communicate with the world. It is about where are those places and communities that you engage with. It is about the development and growth experience that you provide when someone is working in your company and in your environment. And it is about development, right? People who join these companies want to know that they are working with rock stars, that they're growing and that they're learning. And so it's not HR is sitting on the side trying to recruit someone and communicate a message that is a certain culture, but rather the business leader, the development professional, those are the ones who should be communicating and exciting you by communicating an authentic experience that is their lived experience in an organization. And those are some of the things that I'm seeing. I don't know, Adi, if you're seeing. Yes, first of all, I think that the great attrition was a really important moment because obviously very extreme and thank God, I think it's behind us. And I agree that not all of it, but at least the peak is behind us. But it was a very important peak. Because in moments like that, you need to go to the whiteboard and rewrite the books. In moments like that, you need to learn new muscles. And the reality of understanding that we need to figure out how to retain talent, how to hire talent, and how to retain talent in a very extreme moment where people were living every single day, it created a new muscle, I think, for the strong companies that will last in, in good days and bad days. So I can say that, like, personally, what we've been focused on in the last eight years was finding talent based on raw talent, based on capabilities and not experience. So it's something that took us time to explain to the global company because they worship experience. Everything is based on experience. So like you look at people and you ask, what did they do before? Where did they work? What was their job? What was their role? How senior they were? And we said, we don't care. We, want, we don't want, for us, experience is a proxy. It's a good proxy, but it's only a proxy. So if we can replace the proxy by something else to be able to predict that someone will be amazing, then you don't need the experience anymore. So the only thing is to bet on the right talent, on the right super talent that will become amazing. So every person that joins Meta goes through at least eight interviews. I'm sure that it's relatively similar at McKinsey. So eight interviews, and that's very different. We teach this to startups because they do it very differently. The decision is made by the team together. So enough that one person is not for the hire, we will not hire. It's not the manager, it's the whole team. It's actually the colleague that makes the decision. So if you hire super talent, hire talent. That's a really cool equation. Not managers hire talent, but talent hire talent. They look for people they want to aspire from and learn from and feel that they, that they brought someone as strong as them because strong people want to work with strong people. Eight interviews is very tough. But the beauty of it is that you get an unbelievable perspective of many views and people that each sees something different. And then you get like the full picture being drawn, which allows you to skip experience as a proxy because you have really strong people that are interviewing and then a lot of people give a lot of feedback on what they've learned about the candidate. And that allows us to bring very young people, really young, some of them fresh from university, to roles that in other offices 
people with 15 years of experience do. Obviously, then taking a year to train them. The ROI is crazy. It's, I can't explain how amazing it is to take raw talent, then make them do in a year something that in other places they would have done probably in three and four. Adi, that's super fascinating to hear. Now, can I just ask you, how do you think about retaining your talent? What's the meta philosophy in Israel? I think that retaining talent is a big one. And, and for me, it's, so again, at the big attrition, at the great attrition, like you called it, different companies looked for different things, from throwing money at employees to throwing crazy parties to unbelievable compensation. I don't think these are the elements that keep talent for a long time. It's fun. It's great. It's great to be well compensated and it's great to have amazing parties. And it's great to have like a, a lot of, uh, I don't know, to be spoiled. Yeah, obviously. But I don't think that's what attracts great talent. And if someone is staying at your company because of that, you need to let them go. The issue here is to really have managers that have a growth mindset that they understand that a big chunk of their role is not the business outcome, is growing their team. Like bigger than the business outcome. If they would grow the team, if they would focus on team health and growth and development, the rest will come. So one thing that we do, and I think that like Matt, we talked about it, but is really walking the talk of strength-based management. It's something that a lot of HR people say, like strength-based management. I think very few companies actually walk the talk. Not understanding that at the end of the day, no one wins by fixing their shit. No one. You may not come last at the race, if you're going to fix your weakness. But you're never going to win the race by fixing your weakness. You're only going to win the race by leveraging strength. And it's a wake-up call talking about the great attrition. We talk strength. We don't execute it. And executing it is not caring about what someone is not good at. As much as we want to fix it, it's not important. It's focusing on what people are brilliant at. And we've made a decision that this is going to be really like our forte, our strength. And I'm proud to say it's a language today. It really, it's embedded. We can talk about this for hours, but really focusing on what each individual is really brilliant at and then leveraging that strength day after day, role after role, project after project, and holding ourselves accountable, both the employee and the manager, accountable for that process. Dana, this sounds pretty familiar from our own McKinsey feedback and development system. Can you perhaps give us some international context on this? What are the McKinsey people and organizational growth teams seeing globally here when you're working with clients? I think a lot of what Adi mentioned is consistent with what we're seeing globally. I would say three things that are probably the most popular, right, trends in those companies that are really trying to do the right thing and create that environment that would excite, retain and attract the right talent. One is capability building is crucial. And so there's a massive investment in capability building, again, because we know we cannot hire and outsource and fire our way out of this major gap that was created. And because we know that people today are looking to continuously develop in any job that they take on. This is what the current generations, working generations are looking for. So the second thing is we know that the one single predictor of what keeps a person happy in their job is their direct manager. And this is exactly what you were talking about, Adi, and saying we need to teach our leaders, our managers, how to develop someone, how to have a feedback conversation, an honest, genuine feedback conversation that speaks about what are those things that you're doing amazingly well, but also where you should be thinking about doing things differently, not in the spirit of focusing on those nth and the next level of things that you might want to improve, but really what are the few things that you want to do differently and excite them. And the third thing I would say is 
going back to this working environment, which you've talked about as well, because toxic environments lead to burnout. Burnout is the first predictor of attrition. And if we're trying to create that virtuous cycle of including, keeping, exciting, diverse talent in organizations, that would be critical. And I just touched on it by mentioning the third one, and that is diversity. Any organization that wants to tap into the full breadth of what the world has to offer has to be thinking diversity and diversity of all kinds. The different tracks that you came from, whether you were an engineer or a scientist or an artist or whatever that might be. Different gender, different communities, different experiences in life, diversity of thought. That is a major source of renewal, excitement and a predictor of success of a company, to be honest. I ended up mentioning four, four actually, capability building, the individual manager and the role in what you're doing, your culture and the working environment, and of course, thinking about diversity and how you make the most out of it. And, and can I ask, Matt, can I ask a question? Perfect. So when you talk about culture, what do you refer to? It's a big word, right? It's a very good question because culture can be interpreted many, many different ways. But when we speak of culture, we talk about the way things are done around here. So what does the working environment feel like? Are we clear on what is the collective purpose and ambition of the organizations that we're part of? Do we understand the role that we have in that? Do we understand what our role is in delivering on that? And do we take ownership of that? And how do we actually collaborate with each other, make decisions, make things happen, all these things. And there's a long list of things that we would look at, but it's basically how does it feel to work in this place day in and day out? Yeah, so I agree with you. And I think that one challenge, and again, working with startups for many years now, is seeing that building a culture when you are 10 is easy. And then when you are 100, gets a lot more difficult. And then when you are 1000 and you have teams all over the world, is a lot more difficult and we see it in, in the global company. And I would probably say that I think that the number one reason for people to live is most of the time will be internal and not external. And it's something that we need to remember. It's not the challenges outside. It's not that the market goes down. It's not that there's not enough opportunities in the company you work for. It's internal and in many times culture and in many times like political stuff or frustration from how the internal company is operating. And when it's not working, we fail. So I agree with you. I think culture is probably one of the most important things we should focus on. It's the individual strength and then the team they work at, the organization they work at, and the environment that they are part of. Adi, I think many people will be fascinated to hear what you had to say about the recruitment of people based on their potential rather than their pot potentially their experience. How do you promote that? You've got someone who perhaps thinks, I would love to work at Meta Israel, but I don't have the experience. This person has extraordinary potential and that person potentially wouldn't think of applying. So how do you tackle that? How do you promote this culture and this way of thinking? So the cool thing is that once you have enough people that, are, that join when they were very young or that are very young in experience, they bring their friends. So it's, I think that... When you have a really strong working environment and a really strong culture and people that feel that they work with the best talent out there, they would be the best marketing machine to bring the next generation of talent. So that's one. And then the second thing is go to where young people are. So go to universities and make sure that the different kind of communities that have relatively young talent hear about it. And again... The, obviously, there are specific roles, and, and especially on the engineering side, 
that experience really matters, both academic as well as work experience, of course. But I think that many of the roles can actually, if we would develop a muscle of identifying talent and allowing ourselves to count less on experience, we will be able to bring amazing people on board and it's happening. It just strikes me. It seems like actually a wonderful opportunity to reach outside of the sort of Tel Aviv bubble to perhaps different areas in Israel beyond the sort of traditional networks that often provide the funnel for employment in the country. Do you have a specific approach to that, to the kind of non-traditional areas where you might look to to recruit? Diverse talent. Yeah. Yeah, so again, I think that being a global company makes it easier. It's more difficult for smaller startups. But being a global company, you have so many methodologies that were put in place to make sure that we're focusing on diverse talent that allows you to do that without the price. Because focusing on diversity without managing it well, you can end up with women having a role that others say that they got it just because they're a woman. Okay, we don't want that. The issue is not just to come and say we have a KPI of how many women we have in specific role or how many people we have from the periphery, but actually focus on sourcing in a different way. I think that's the goal. And sourcing in a different way means that AI sources have goal to work harder and go to places they normally don't go, not just wait for referral, like you say, and not just wait for people to come to us, but find them. That's one. And then when we are opening a role, you're going to have let's say, five people that will go through the full circle of the recruitment of these 80 interviews. Make sure that we have enough diverse people in that process. And then may the best men or women, center or periphery, Arabs, ultra-Orthodox or, or secular win. But to make sure that we have enough. Are we there? Eh, no, not yet. I would say we have a long way to go. Are we on the way? Absolutely. And in some places, winning big time. Periphery is not an issue. So really from all over the country. So per periphery is less of an issue, but we don't have enough Arabs. We don't have enough um, ultra-Orthodox. And it's definitely a topic. Interesting. Matt, maybe I just adding something that it goes to the previous question. In addition to all the things that Adi mentioned as ways to identify and attract potential and skills rather than experience and education, we are seeing an increasing trend of in injecting analytics into that. And it is still growing and it is still learning, but learning what to look for in someone's profile to be able to see that they have some of the ingredients to be successful in a certain role. Hopefully over time that will help us identify the potential that there is out there, the skills that would be helpful for us outside the organization and also in the organization. So that's one of the things that we are seeing increasingly being considered as part of the recruiting process. Dana, one super interesting area here, of course, is the investment companies now need to make in upskilling and career path planning. Can you say a bit more about that, including perhaps whether this is a space where given the current economic environment, we might see even more focus than we have before? I think there's no doubt. Organizations have to invest more. And by the way, it doesn't mean that they need to invest more in everything at home. It means that they need to be very thoughtful about what is it that they would need in terms of skills and capabilities internally or externally and where they could build that. And so we are seeing organizations thinking about the lifelong learning of employees, how learning becomes a journey rather than a one-off event that happens when you're promoted to a new role or when there's a change in your career. And they're thinking about an ecosystem. So some of it will be in-house, but some of it can lean on 
exciting opportunities that are out there. And it is not only the hard skills, right? It's the leadership skills, it's the management skills, it's the functional skills. And those could be learned anywhere. You don't have to be in a classroom learning some specific technology. But we're seeing everybody investing more hours, more money, and more thoughtfulness, not only in what it is that needs to be learned, but also the different career paths that one can take over their lifetime. You don't want to force an engineer to be a manager as their only way to grow and advance. They may have three other exciting roles that they could take in a company. And maybe to add that growth within the role and not just focusing on moving from one role to another and how companies and leaders create massive growth opportunities within the role in a way that when someone is ending his like few years doing the role, the role is actually different. So you need to hire someone different for the role now. If you think about that and create for top talent opportunities to grow massively within the role in a way that actually redefine the role, I think that's a, a huge win. Adi. We've talked about the development of the space in which you currently operate as Meta over the last 12 years, and we've talked about how you're evolving your talent offer in the company today. Now, can we turn to the future? I guess the clue is in the name or the name change, right? But does the Metaverse really matter? I hope it will really matter. So I can share like a funny story. When I was um, actually at 888, on one day, this was back in 2008 or 9, one day we were in the like leadership meeting, management meeting. Uh, there was a knock on the door and someone came in with a package. It was really nicely wrapped. We opened it. There was an iPhone inside. We were one of the biggest internet companies in the world. One of the biggest digital companies in the world, yeah? The phone, the iPhone was going around, around the room. Everyone were like looking at it, taking it up, down, finished the round. And there was a consensus, literally a consensus by one of the biggest internet companies in the world that this is a gimmick. And I tell that story because... I think that in many ways we look at the metaverse right now and Web 3.0 a little bit as a gimmick and it's okay because this is how it looks at the day one. It, listen, it's not even day one. It's our one of day one, okay? It's really the beginning. And it will take probably 10 years. Some of the things we'll see earlier, but it will take 10 years before it's going to be as massive and as big in our life, the same as Web 2.0 is and mobile and the same as Web 1.0 and desktop was. But if you think about the metaverse as the next phase of the internet, and the phase one was desktop and home internet, home connection, very slow, even though we thought it was fast. Every software was very locally storaged, so it was very heavy. And our ability to communicate with the world existed, but really poorly compared to what it is today. And then Web 2.0 suddenly taking this internet communication and desktop and putting it in our hand being everywhere with us as mobile as as we could imagine with ability to consume content and software and to communicate everywhere and every single minute of the day and that was web 2.0 so we need to hold it in our hand which is a bizarre experience we got used to it but but it's not the best experience and then we watch it from the outside right so it's a 2d they mentioned we watch the internet from the outside. The presence experience is very lagging compared to what it could be in the future. And the question is, can the next phase of the internet and can the metaverse change that and allow us to, to have a presence experience that don't exist today in the 2D dimension, watching the screen from the outside, but actually being a lot more present in it? I think the answer is yes. I think, I, I actually think that when you think about AR and VR, thinking that's not going to be a big chunk 
of how we're going to live our life is similar to thinking that iPhone was a gimmick at the time. But Bill Gates said, we always uh, overestimate what we can do in a year or two, and we always underestimate what will happen in the, ten, in the next 10 years. So, yeah, I think AR and VR and Metaverse will be a big part of our life, the same as mobile and desktop were in the first phases of the internet. That's fascinating. And I think that the scale point that you make about us being in the first hour of this, if you like, is a brilliant one. There's a question I think I, you'll appreciate I have to ask around this, given the kind of nascent point at which the technology is at that, that you mentioned. And given the issues that Facebook, now Meta, have wrestled with in the recent past, privacy, online behavior, monitoring and policing of content, child protection, political interference claims, etc. Like, obviously, the metaverse takes that potentially to a whole different level. So how are you thinking about the evolution of the metaverse in the context of those issues? So, I, first of all, these are very important issues. And in many ways, we have a very unique opportunity. So the internet revolution, and definitely the first chapter and the second chapter, desktop and mobile, were a big surprise, right? Like, they became such a big part of our life in over a very short period of time. And the people that were the builders of the internet, that created the big companies, the infra, the experiences... I don't think really anticipated being entrepreneurs and very optimistic entrepreneurs never anticipated also the bad that will come with it. The important opportunity we have right now is that we are on the first minute of the first hour of the first year of a probably 10 or 20 years revolution. And we have all this experience now. So we understand the internet better than we did today. Okay, We understand the good, the bad and the ugly. We understand the amazing use cases, so we can imagine how education will be in the metaverse. We can imagine how this can be the revolution that we were looking for, from consuming content in ways that we never could before. So we can imagine the revolution. We can't still execute on it because the technology is not here, but we can imagine it. And at the same time, we can also imagine the abuse and already now start to plan for it and have the right partners to do it with us. So all these companies that will build the metaverse and Facebook is going to be meta will be only one out of many, now have the opportunity to collaborate on day one with regulator, with policymakers, with professionals, and all these important topics you mentioned, Matt, before, and have them be part of this journey already from day one and build it together. And that's what we're doing. So we have all these amazing consultant on every dimension, people that know about those things way better than we do. That's not our profession. Joining the rides, basically having a seat at the table, at the decision-making table on how we actually want to build it. In many ways, similar to how you think about AI, right? It's obviously it's going to be, and it is one of the biggest revolution. Does it come with bad elements in it? Of course it does. But when you think about the two together on day one, you can plan the good and you can mitigate the bad in the best possible way. That's the opportunity we have right now. And very final question to you now. Let's go from the metaverse back to the startup nation, right? What does the metaverse mean for Israel? Many people talk about the metaverse leveling the playing field. So what does it mean for Israeli B2C companies? Wow. So this is where I get really excited. So we almost missed Web 1.0 and Web 2.0. We almost missed it. And Lana said before, to be honest, without COVID, I don't know if we would have managed to close the gap. So COVID, the massive digital acceleration that happened during COVID and the fact that we had already some companies or many companies that moved really fast, allowed the Israeli entrepreneurship ecosystem and startups to close some of the gaps, 
compared to the American companies. But U.S. is so ahead of us. When you look at the U.S. entrepreneurs and startups, so ahead of us when it comes to B2C companies. So we celebrated like uh, different uh, startups here reaching $10 billion valuation, $5 billion valuation. We really celebrated it. But the equivalent in the U.S. is $100 billion valuation. It's $200 billion valuation. It's huge, massive companies. And the gap is not because we can't. It's not because we sit in Israel. It's because we started late. Because we, didn't, we were not there on the first day of the race. We've catched up, and now we are like catching up. And COVID allowed us to catch up a bit faster because we moved faster on this. Now we have the opportunity to be there on day one. When the race starts, like on the starting line of the race, we can have Israeli entrepreneurs, both from the deep tech side of building the infra of the metaverse, but also from the B2C side, building the experiences for people. So the idea here is that, think about the travel vertical, how it's going to be on the metaverse, how people will choose where to travel. I'm traveling to Paris in a few days. It was hell to find an hotel, okay? How easy it would be to find an hotel or a restaurant or a, a street I want to go and see. When you think about who will be the leading company in travel, on the Web 3.0. I don't think it's going to be the leading companies in Web 1.0 and 2.0, the current leading companies. I don't think so. The innovator dilemma will happen. So the big companies that exist today in the internet will not be the big companies of Web 3.0. And can that be an Israeli startup? Yes, it can. We just need to make sure that we are there on day one when the race starts and build amazing B2C experiences on top of building the deep tech side of it. So it's a massive opportunity for Israel. We have the entrepreneurs, we have the product, we have the creativity, we have the knowledge, we have the funding right now. Everyone believes in B2C, I hope, by now. I think the next phase of the internet will allow us to grow the ecosystem way faster and build much bigger companies. Adi and Dana, thank you so much. I think we're going to have to dedicate a whole other episode at some point. Perhaps in a year's time, we'll come back and we'll be in hour two of the metaverse and we can see how things have developed amazing. over time. Yeah. But listen, thank you so much. And we've really enjoyed talking to you today. Same. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to McKinsey Israel on High Tech. Subscribe to our podcast and feel free to contact us at israelpodcast at mckinsey.com to share your thoughts, comments, and suggestions.